You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of episodes, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a lecture by Monique Shear, Professor of Historical and Cultural Anthropology at the University of Tübingen. Her lecture, Emotions as Cultural Practices, A Challenging Perspective, took place on November 15th, 2019, and was organised in partnership with the Architecture and Narrative Project and the UCD Humanities Institute. Professor Shear was introduced by Dr. Catherine Fama from the UCD School of English, Drama and Film. Welcome, everyone. I want to thank Dr. Sarah Ebrahimi for organizing today's event and the broader seminar series and reading group in the history of emotions here at UCD. It's my honor to introduce our speaker for this evening, Professor Monique Scheer. Professor Dr. Scheer is full professor at the University of Tübingen's Department of Historical and Cultural Anthropology, where she also serves as Vice President of International Affairs. Professor Scheer brings perspectives from history and anthropology of emotions together addressing belief and conviction, religious and secular. Dr. Scheer approaches the study of emotion through practice theory, utilizing historical and ethnographic methods. She's published widely on popular religious practices in modern Germany, for which she was recognized by the Walter de Greuter Prize from the Berlin-Brandenburg Academy of Arts and Sciences and Humanities. Her topics include the shifting meanings of black Madonnas from the 17th to 20th centuries, Marian apparition cults in Cold War Germany, and the emotional practices of Protestant worship. These works also represent her interest in the history of knowledge production and circulation, particularly regarding constructions of race and ethnicity in the cultural sciences in Europe. Professor Scher is the co-editor-in-chief of Ethnologia Europea, Journal of European Ethnology, and serves on the editorial boards of Geschichte und Gesellschaft, Emotions in Society, and Emotions, History, Culture, Society. Professor Scheer contributes significantly to field-shaping collaborative projects, editing the 2010 Doing Anthropology in Wartime and War Zones, World War I and the Cultural Sciences in Europe, and the 2013 Out of the Tower, Essays on Culture and Everyday Life, and contributed to the 2011 and 2014 translation, Emotional Lexicons, Continuity and Change in the Vocabulary of Feeling, 1700 to 2000. This year, she's co-edited both Secular Bodies, Affects and Emotions, European Configurations, and The Public Work of Christmas, Difference and Belonging in Multicultural Societies. Her forthcoming enthusiasm, feeling conviction in modern Germany is greatly anticipated. Thinking through emotions as practice, Professor Scheer succeeds in, quote, bridging persistent dichotomies that have continued to challenge the history of emotions. As she argues in her 2012, are emotions a kind of practice, and is that what makes them have a history? Quote, important from the perspective of practice theory is the assumption that this learning of emotional response is not only conceptual, but also embodied. Rather than seeking to reconstruct emotional truth, Dr. Scheer argues, Quote, the question becomes how and why historical actors mobilize their bodies in certain ways. Cultivated specific skilled performances and debated emotional practices among themselves. She concludes that, quote, emotions change over time, not only because norms, expectations, words, and concepts that shape experience are modified, but also because the practices in which they are embodied and bodies themselves undergo transformation. In taking the time to structure and explain in such, such methodological works, Professor Scheer writes generously and clearly, opening the field and wel- welcoming new interlocutors and students of the history of emotions. Tonight, she will speak on emotions as cultural practice, a challenging perspective. Please join me in welcoming Professor Monique Scheer. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you very much for that 
generous and warm introduction. Thank you to everyone here for coming on a Friday evening. Thank you to Sarah for this lovely invitation. It's my first visit to Dublin, uh, so I'm really excited to be here and uh, uh, engage with a whole new group of, of scholars. Sarah also told me that the purpose of this seminar was to uh, uh, debate various uh, approaches, uh, introduce some new approaches to uh, the study of the history of emotions. Um, and, you know, as Catherine pointed out, I sort of stand for this uh, approach based on pa practice theory. And um, so I, I thought that, you know, I would need to talk about that a little bit. But I'm also interested in uh, talking tonight about uh, how it's developed over the past six or seven years, uh, you know, since I published the piece. And how I've what I've seen it getting drawn into, and um, and uh, the kinds of debates that have emerged from uh, people engaging with it. Uh, but in case some people here aren't familiar with the article, I thought I would also uh, sketch it out a little bit. So that's sort of where I'm going with this uh, with this talk. Um, I'll start by. Um, sketching out an overview of the history of the history of emotions, very briefly. Uh, it seems to be a very interesting topic, uh, the history of, of this field, uh, because uh, there have been a surprising number of monographs uh, that have appeared on it. Um, of course, uh, Jan Plamper's uh, book, uh, The History of Emotions, an introduction. Um, but more recently also, uh, an introduction by Barbara Rosenwein and Ricardo Cristiani, uh, What is the History of Emotions?, uh, which is very, very accessibly written, a uh, nice introduction if you're uh, looking for one. And um, Rob Bodice has also written a History of Emotions uh, introduction. So this is uh, something that people are grappling with. They all have slightly different narratives, these three uh, books. Plamper um, follows um, uh, Bill Reddy to a certain extent in his uh, juxtaposition of anthropology uh, and history and uh, neuroscience. Uh, Rosenwein and Christiani are uh, interested in uh, outlining various approaches and linking them to methods, and they also do this with uh, examples from, from historical sources. And, um, and Rob Bodice organ organizes his book around the fields, various fields of emotions history. So everybody has a different sort of uh, way of uh, telling the story. And, of course, I also have a narrative of my own uh, that I've... Uh, uh, developed over the over the years, um, and it's one in which I think that the first battle uh, to be bought to, to be fought um, in the history of emotions was one that uh, you know, ten fifteen years ago, uh, it seemed very important to first grapple with the uh, issue that uh, emotions were considered to be irrational, um, that they were biological hardwired reactions um, of the body that were uh, delivered to us through evolutionary processes. And, um, and thirdly, that they were purely subjective experiences, emotions. So the first step um, in the history of emotions was to uh, establish that emotions are a kind of cognition, that they aren't irrational, that they have their own sort of rationality. And this was also the uh, point that uh, Barbara Rosenwein made in her important article that is also apparently the inspiration for this series, Worrying About Emotions. Um, and uh, she drew on cognitive science and uh, uh, cognitive psychology to argue that um, we look at emotions as cognitive processes as much as uh, anything else because... Uh, otherwise, we would fall into the habit of looking at emotions as in the hydraulic model, as she put it, which was uh, inspired also by Freudian theory. So uh, because of that, um, emotions were considered to then be uh, worthwhile as a historical object of study. Um, and they were removed, so to speak, from the body and therefore valued as, as much as thought was valued, um, just as appraisals and judgments, um, another way of thinking about emotions put forward also by Martha Nussbaum, seemed to validate emotions as uh, an object that shouldn't be just set aside as either irrational and therefore uninteresting or 
uh, in fact, problematic, something to be overcome. And then the, the other uh, step that was taken in these uh, early years of the history of emotions was that um, people were grappling with the relationship of expression and experience. Uh, in 1985, very early on, uh, Peter Stearns uh, and his then-wife, Carol Stearns, uh, published an article that was widely read on emotionology, uh, which made a sharp distinction between expression and experience, saying that, well, we really can't get at experience. It's part of the body. And all we can get at as historians are the uh, norms and rules and regulations about uh, emotional expression. And then we can trace the history of that emotionology, the knowledge about emotions and what is allowed and what is not allowed to be expressed. Um, this uh, uh, was one of the first um, dichotomies that we in Berlin um, attacked. I was uh, one of the founding members of this uh, group uh, that was headed up by Ute Freivat, who I understand has also spoken here uh, recently. Um, she started the group uh, at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin on the history of emotions in 2008. And we began reading, and we agreed that we needed to uh, grapple with this problem of expression and experience that uh, Stearns had so neatly separated, also because we felt that if you uh, separated the emotional experience out of the historical project, were you really doing a history of emotions? And uh, Bill Reddy's book was also very important to us then. Um, it was still relatively new. It came out in 2001. Uh, and it was one that um, uh, showed us that Expression and, and experience are uh, linked in a very complex way um, that we shouldn't think of emotion as simply the expression of, uh, uh, of we shouldn't think of, think of emotional expression as something representing uh, a state that is already there inside a person, but that is in fact interacts with that uh, inward state. Um, Reddy's work um, drew on, on speech act theory to make this point uh, and showed how the expression not only represents emotion but actually impacts our emotional experience in different ways. Uh, it was very clear to uh, um, allow for uh, an, an impact on our emotional experience that, is, um, that augments it, that makes it stronger when I say I'm happy I actually feel even more happy by saying it, but it might also backfire. You might say, I'm, I feel happy, and as you're saying it, you realize, no, I'm not. Um, so this was uh, obviously an important uh, point to be made because otherwise uh, it would lead to some sort of deterministic uh, model in which if I just say I'm happy, then I am, and then what would the whole therapeutic industry do? They would have no work. <laughs> it would be so easy. Um, so this was um, also a very important text uh, for us because it, um, it, it challenged us to think about the ways that expression and experience are connected. Um, however, uh, one of the critiques of, of Reddy's model was that it was very um, logocentric, as some put it. It was very much focused on language, on speech, on speech acts. Uh, and uh, one of uh, the things we debated, and that's something that kept me very busy was the uh, question of whether uh, other sorts of expression could also have the same emotive quality that uh, Reddy ascribed to speech acts. Um, if, you know, smiling, um, gesturing, shedding tears also uh, had that sort of uh, effect of making you reflect on your, or on your uh, emotional state. And in general, it, uh, all, of these, uh, all of these early um, approaches to this history of emotions seemed to be quite uh, oriented uh, toward cognition and toward the brain and toward the mind. This was also maybe the trend at the time. Neuroscience was very uh, popular and getting a lot of funding and everybody was talking about the brain. Um, and so it was like, as I put it in another article, uh, in order for the history of emotions to really gain traction and, and, and gain some cachet, it had to suck the emotions into the head. 
and make them something, you know, um, grainy in order it, for it not to be too icky. And um, that was, I thought that was a problem. It was reproducing a common dichotomy uh, that is also gendered uh, between the mind and the body. And, uh, and it also seemed to go against what we know emotions to be, or at least that we know uh, intuitively, you could say, but also it's, um, I, I was sort of uh, uh, following William James in this regard, that you can't really say something is an, is an emotion unless your body has been affected, unless your body is involved. I mean, if, it's, if there's no, I mean, Damasio puts it in his book, I don't say I think happy, I feel happy. And there's something, there's a distinction between think and feel that seems to be located, you know, in the body. That's, that's what makes the difference. And if we're going to stake out a, a piece of reality that we call emotion, then we need to, to, to say what we mean by it. And uh, my suggestion would be to definitely include the body. So... Um, by, you know, the strategy of, of reclaiming emotions for historical analysis uh, by turning it into thought and or language um, erases the body out of the equation. This is something we wanted to remedy. And um, because what are emotions if not bodily? So how do we bring the body back in? That was the, that was the question. And so my approach uh, or my suggestion at the time and... Um, uh, the, the approach that I've worked with uh, on my recent book that I've uh, finally finished and uh, sent off to the publisher on enthusiasm um, has been to look at emotions as a kind of practice. Uh, briefly summarized, uh, the, the catchphrase uh, has become emotions are not something we have, emotions are something that we do. I have to uh, uh, also perhaps remark that the title of the article, Are Emotions a Kind of Practice, was an adaptation of the title of a talk I heard that, uh, that William Reddy gave um, at a conference we both attended in uh, Jerusalem uh, back in, I think, maybe 2010, uh, which in, the title of his talk was Are Emotions a Kind of Language or a Kind of uh, Speech? And... Uh, and that title stuck in my head, and so when it was time for me to write this up, I thought, this is going to be my title. Are they a kind of practice? And um, this, is, this is really the main thrust of the argument. Emotions are not a kind of language in the sense that they represent an inner state. They're a kind of action of the body, specifically the kind of action that, by, that practice theory uh, construes as habituated, not perhaps, you know, uh, transpiring without any intentional uh, intentionality behind it. It just sort of, you know, happens. Uh, practice is something we do, but some practice is something that does you as well. I mean, it, it practices so it can sort of flow through the subject the way, the way uh, um, discourse does. Uh, we, we pick up practices and, and they, you know, emerge from our bodies. Um, and it seemed to me that if we were going to think of emotions as a kind of, of uh, performance or action, it would be useful to think of it as a kind of practice because we would take this question of intentionality sort of out of the equation and then we could have intentional and unintentional, active and passive, all in one uh, concept. The body in practice theory is also considered to be deeply socialized. This was also very important for my conception of, uh, of the body that I wanted to bring back in to the history of emotions, that it not be a universal, ahistorical body, but one that is deeply embedded in a certain time and place. Um, and so the concept of habitus that Bourdieu's practice theory in particular offers seemed to be very appropriate and very helpful as to think of as the place from which emotions as practices emerge. This allows for us to conceive of emotions as being learned, acquired, but overlearned, as psychologists sometimes say, automated, so that they become like a reflex. And when they are performed, they, it feels like it's a reflex, a, reflex, a, a reaction that is pre uh, cultural, but it's actually been so deeply habituated 
uh, that it is uh, that you can trace it back to a, a specific social setting in which it has been learned. And even if you were to consider that there are certain mechanisms in the body that are supplied by uh, biology and by evolutionary history, um, the premise of practice theory would be to say that uh, this mechanism, these, these, uh, this equipment of the body, um, would never exist without some sort of modification by the community in which a person lives. Um, so, you know, this doesn't have to clash with uh, uh, biological approaches that point to certain uh, mechanisms in the body, uh, but it would emphasize that no organ, not, especially not the brain, remains untouched by life in the world, and it becomes modified and, and formed and shaped. And I think that perhaps uh, other parts of the body do as well. So um, this is a, this, this uh, idea coming from practice theory that the body is uh, infused with mind, with culture, and therefore history, and that this habitus produces emotions based not uh, on an, an evolutionary pattern alone, but one modified by a certain community and time and place um, is, is the foundation, and that emotion is then uh, conceived of as practice as something the body does. Um, I think it's preferable to using the term performance, performing emotion, although I sometimes do say performing, uh, but always with the understanding that it's not in the sense of a, an intentional performance as, as if in the theater, uh, but that sometimes it just happens. In the article, I also uh, was very careful to uh, make a um, an offering to historians and anthropologists uh, in terms of method, you know, also great theory, but how do we use it? Um, and so I, I outlined four kinds of, um, of doing emotion that I thought could be looked for in sources and, um, and in observations in, in, um, in uh, field work and so on. And they're here on the slide. Mobilizing practices, uh, which um, can be, uh, or is anything that we do in order to uh, achieve a certain emotional uh, doing, uh, help ourselves get it going. And these are very familiar uh, settings in which uh, emotions are very important, such as uh, performing music, listening to music. Um, I, when I see people wearing their headphones uh, or their earbuds in the, in the subway, I'm thinking they're keeping their, they're ma managing their mood as they go to work in the morning by listening to something nice. Uh, on the, on the earphones, um, we uh, manage our moods or, we, or we, we choose a certain media in order to have a certain emotion. You know, we, we want to watch a, uh, a rom-com maybe because we want to laugh and cry before we turn in for the night. Um, and so uh, these kinds of activities would be emotional practices that are mobilizing our emotions. Uh, we talk about emotions a lot. We talk about our own emotions, talk about other people's emotions. And in so doing, we're shaping them. We're giving them uh, a more specific sort of experience. Uh, this is very close to Reddy's notion of emo emotives, which I've referred to as naming practices. Then there are a lot of settings in which you can find people using uh, a, a very emotionalized form of speech, um, more or less uh, intentionally. This is sort of the whole area uh, that, uh, that the field of rhetorics would cover, um, which I've referred to as communicating practices. And then um, I felt like there was also a, a large area that could be found in a lot of sources on rules and regulations about, um, about emotions and sites and contexts and institutions in which we learn to have emotions properly. And those would be regulating practices. <coughs> so the point um, of this approach is to emphasize the centrality of the body for the emotional process, so to bring the body back in after it had been sucked up into the mind. Um, not to focus only on words. Words are still important, but uh, also to have an eye for uh, gestures, facial expressions, actions uh, that could also uh, be linked to uh, emotions and emotional experience. 
And the second important point of this, uh, of this intervention was to uh, make clear that if we talk about the body as being involved in emotion, that we think of it as an historical body, uh, and to put forward this concept of habitus as the place from which it's, it's an in-between place between body and mind from which emotions emerge. So to counter, uh, uh, to, ca to, to offer a counter-argument to any uh, suggestion that the body is hardwired. And thirdly, um, I wanted to try to shift our thinking away from emotions as states. This uh, seemed to me, this was the point of thinking of emotions as something that we do and not something that we have, uh, that emotions are not just states of the body, but actually processes or even actions doing, a kind of doing. So, but I, I, as I stated in my title, uh, emotion is not just a practice in my view, but it is a cultural practice. I uh, have thought I would um, make it a, a more precise kind of practice in this talk tonight because it's something that has sort of come out over the years that, um, that it's interesting to think of it as a cultural practice. Uh, emotion emerges from culture and contributes to culture. It builds on culture. It only fully makes sense in a cultural context. Uh, Cross-cultural understanding of emotion is possible, but I think constrained, limited to a certain amount, to a certain extent. It's not something that un emotions are not a, the universal language that some of us would like to think that they are. Uh, so they need to be looked at very carefully. Um, and emotions are taken into account in the context of other cultural practices. Emotional and not specifically emotional, so uh, practices that could be framed as um, framed otherwise. Um, and this is what I'd like to emphasize today: that um, that since the notion of emotion as practice, sort of generally, has um, been rather well received uh, in the in the community of uh, uh, historians of emotion. Um, what um, I think needs to be emphasized now is that. Uh, Emotions as practices are always intertwined with other practices. Uh, practices that always, I mean, any sort of cultural practice always comes in connection with others. They always come in packages or in bundles of practice. So uh, you, it would be, it, it, as historians, it doesn't make sense for us to try and look at only emotion purely. We have to look at it in its entire context and in, in, in the um, in the whole sort of group of practices that it's uh, linked to. So, for example, uh, the, the fieldwork that I did in church, uh, in Protestant churches, showed me that um, the emotion that, that people wanted to achieve, and this is an example, this picture is an example from a, a charismatic uh, style of uh, Protestant church, but even uh, those that you might think are... Um, not emotional, the you know, sort of run-of-the-mill uh, mainline Protestant church, which doesn't look like this at all, um, <laughs> but looks rather sedate. Um, but I found uh, when, I went, when I went to this church and said, I'm interested in the connection between uh, emotion and belief, uh, they said, oh, emotion, really? I don't know. I thought, are you joking? I mean, come on. Um, and then when I went to the, to the Lutheran church, uh, the mainline church, and I said, yeah, I'm interested in emotions, the importance of emotions for your religious practice, they said, oh, yes, emotions are so important. <laughs> so that was already um, an interesting experience to see how counterintuitive these, um, these you know, ascriptions could be. Um, but I found that in each of these churches, the people went to achieve the, you know, to do the emotional practice that they wanted to do that was for them the meaningful one, the meaningful way of doing it, and, uh, and that the whole setting was geared toward achieving that. So your music was the kind of music that you needed to get there. The architectural space was constructed in such a way that it was conducive to this sort of, um, in this case, uh, feeling like you're at a rock concert. Uh, and in the case of a, of a more traditional uh, mainline Protestant church, uh, one that sort of directs your senses inward, um, not so much that, to draw you out uh, in, in the area of the church. Um, 
the bodily movement comportment of the people or lack thereof uh, contributed to this, the way people were singing, the way they were praying. They were all hooked together and in this package of, uh, that, that also included the emotional practice, the, the way they were having the feelings that they were having, their intensity, their, their expression, etc. So when I um, formulated this approach um, back in uh, 2010-11, uh, I felt that, the, that it was in the air. I was picking up on something that a lot of people were, were thinking about. Um, and since then, people have also been thinking about it um, a lot in a lot of different ways. Um, and sometimes they refer uh, to my uh, approach and sometimes they don't. There's a lot of... Um, uh, similar stuff going on. Um, but I found that um, it was helpful to those working with written sources as well as those who were, uh, or, or written sources or, or imagery, historical imagery, as well as those who were doing field work. So this was good uh, for me as a historical and, um, as a historian and anthropologist, uh, that, you, that you can uh, apply this method to both areas. And if you're doing field work, you're actually even using your own body as an instrument of research, which is uh, something that is more challenging if you're in the archive, but perhaps not impossible. Um, and it's been interesting to see how over the past six years this concept has been uh, taken up in various um, books or uh, panels at conferences. Um, historians have uh, taken it up quite uh, generously, particularly those of the early modern period, um, perhaps because they have an affinity for anthropology. Um, medievalists uh, have been interested. Barbara Rosenwein has uh, been a, a great uh, inspiration in this regard. Um, but there was already very important work, of course, um, on emotional performances in, in medieval history by uh, Gerd Althoff and, and others that had broken very similar ground uh, that people were working with. Uh, but the uh, uh, one example of how this um, approach has been taken up uh, was published in the journal uh, Cultural History um, last year, um, a roundtable that took place at a conference. Um, we uh, put it together then as, a, as, a, as an article called Emotions as a Kind of Practice, Six Case Studies Utilizing Monique Shear's Practice-Based Approach to Emotions in History. And um, this collection of papers uh, sort of pointed out to me then some of the uh, methodological consequences that people found when using the approach. And one of them uh, was that it was important to follow the conflict, as uh, George Marcus once put it. Uh, conflicts about emotions, debates over emotional styles, um, they produce a lot of source material, which is great for historians. And um, they explicate norms. They, they show what people feel like might be threatened by processes of change. So that's, a, that's a, sort of a good entry point, is a, some sort of conflict that's going on. This is something that I also did in my book, Conflicts over um, Evangelical Emotional Practices in the 19th Century in Germany. Because uh, Protestants didn't really talk about emotion until they started talking about those people's emotion. <laughs> and then it became clear what their norms were. The, another uh, important uh, consequence was that uh, these historians uh, realized it was important to look at written sources not only as a text to be read and interpreted, but also to consider it as the result of something that someone had done, uh, to think about the actual practice of writing um, and following ready expression in, in uh, say, a letter that someone is writing um, is not just a representation of a feeling they have already in their head or in their gut, um, but an ordering of their experience as they are writing. So it gave uh, these scholars a different view on their written sources. Another um, methodological result was that... Um, this approach gave meaning to the routine 
in their sources, as well as to the extraordinary. Special, uh, special events, of course, are emotional and effervescent, so, so to speak, and as, as magnifications of feeling. Uh, but the everyday routines, the everyday routine of, say, childcare, um, the uh, things that, that the way we interact with our neighbors, uh, these are just sort of quotidian uh, acts that train our bodies into emotional habits. And these historians felt that they were that they had uh, a, a way of grappling with those sorts of seemingly uh, innocuous or uninteresting habitual uh, activities. How do you know when someone is talking about an emotion? That was always a big question uh, when looking in historical sources. When, when uh, you think that perhaps this is something uh, related to emotion, but how can you be sure? This approach uh, suggested to these scholars that emotion is there when the body is invoked in whatever the person is, is uh, describing. So one of the uh, discussions we often had in our uh, research group in Berlin was, um, is a feeling like trust really a feeling? Is it an emotion? Or is it just an attitude? Um, and if you found something referring to the body when someone was dis discussing their feeling of trust, then it would suggest that it is being experienced emotionally. Um, a, a, a really good example is um, the emotion of honor, which Ute Frevert, of course, has written uh, about and uh, written about as a lost emotion that we no longer know how to have or to do. Um, and when you read sources from, uh, from the 19th century, uh, it becomes very clear that it is highly emotional, this sense of honor, because people will write things like, uh, you know, my blood is boiling. And if your blood is boiling, that's invoking the body in a very intense sort of way, and that would uh, indicate that honor, this sense of honor, is definitely emotional. So in other words... Um, Emotions have become something uh, to pay attention to in the sources, to unpack, um, not just to mention and then move on. You know, uh, just recently I heard a talk about uh, the shame that people feel when they have to go uh, to accept uh, welfare checks, and um, you know, a lot of social scientists say, "Well, yeah, of course they are ashamed," and then move right on. And this uh, history of emotions approach would suggest let's stop for a minute and think about that. What kind of shame is it? Where does the shame come from? In what context is it embedded? Who is it? Who are the social actors involved in uh, this practice of shame? They're complex cultural practices embedded in symbolic systems, in orders, in social orders, and therefore uh, they are worth what Clifford Geertz referred to as thick description. A sort of unpacking of their complexity and helping us understand where they come from. So I, I mentioned in my title uh, that I uh, expect the concept of emotion as a sort of practice to present a challenge. Um, it might be something difficult to wrap one's head around, the idea that we do emotion. Uh, but I think that that's a very fruitful uh, sort of provocation uh, because, you know, from anthropology I have learned that um, while it's important to understand the language of the field, or as historians would refer to it, the, the language of the sources, um, it is also important to know what your language of analysis is and, you know, uh, Anthropologists often refer this as, to this as the, as the uh, distinction between emic and etic uh, language. Um, and this sort of proposition that we think of emotions as something that we do uh, is that sort of distancing from the source language or from the language of the field in order to be able to talk about it without falling into it and reproducing it. Emotion as cultural practice challenges commonly held notions of what emotions are, um, which we receive mostly from psychology. Uh, 
but also uh, from some philosophical models. And it presents a challenge to historians of emotion because it is a concept that was developed in the social sciences. Uh, and for historians, it's hard to adapt sometimes a concept that uh, is based on fieldwork experience and not on working with texts and images. Uh, but I find that um, there is uh, uh, a lot of interaction between history and anthropology that has been very fruitful to think of sources as mediated forms of or descriptions of past action, uh, just as our field notes become these mediations uh, once we get to the process of writing up our fieldwork experience. And finally, uh, emotion as cultural practice challenges us to look beyond the texts and the images uh, and toward the material world, to spaces and places uh, and how they interact with our bodies and affects and emotions. So now I said it, affect. There has been uh, some rather strange opposition between the two models, practice theory and affect theory. Um, over the years, I've noticed that people like to think of affect theory as being appropriate uh, for those situations in which I'm dealing with a passive experience of, of emotion. You know, emotion is just affecting me and it's and my body is reacting and it's, and it's affect, uh, whereas emotional practices are more intentional. You know, this it creeps back in, this intentionality. And I think neither theory really uh, asks us to, to do either of those things. I think that affect theory would not at all think that it's only responsible for the passive experience of, of emotion, uh, just as much as practice theory would not uh, agree that it's only those moments when we're actively trying to achieve an emotional state that practice theory applies. Uh, but So that, that's been a weird sort of opposition that has been uh, debated quite a bit. And then um, there seems to also be sort of a... Uh, I've called it a political difference here on the slide... Um, and it's kind of a, a difference of orientation. You know, what do I want to do with emotion? What am I interested in? The people who, who gravitate toward affect theory uh, seem to be more interested in the potential of emotions to, um, uh, to change something dramatically and suddenly. Um, it's always this, this metaphor of the rupture that is linked to affect. Whereas the practice theory group is more interested in routine, and continuity, and you know the way things have always been, and change seems to happen a little more gradually. So that uh, may map on to certain dispositions in terms of uh, how we tell stories, how we uh, write our histories, if we're interested in uh, sudden change or um, uh, resistance, uh, or if we're interested in the more uh, continuous uh, and perhaps conservative view. But there has also been a lot of um, harmony between these two models. Um, one of the first people that I encountered who tried to bring them together uh, was um, Deborah Gould in her book uh, uh, called Moving Politics, um, in which she combined um, Bill Reddy's model of emotives, uh, which you know, I would say is more in this uh, practice theory camp uh, with the affect theory of the Chicago uh, field tank um, around Lauren Berlant and others. Um, it was an interesting, uh, it's an interesting uh, way to try and fuse these two concepts that seem to be so, so uh, different. Um, and it was the first hint that maybe they aren't all that different after all. Um, as uh, people have started, more and more people have criticized the model of affect theory that Brian Masumi forwarded, um, and which was hotly debated as being too dualistic and reintroducing a mind-body split that it was supposedly supposed to overcome. Um, there have been um, other models of affect theory that have gained more traction um, that uh, one might also refer to as uh, a phenomenological understanding of affect uh, represented by someone like Sarah Ahmed, for example. Um, and, you know, when I read Sarah Ahmed's work, I find that it's very much like uh, a practice theory approach. 
a little different wording, but when it comes down to it, uh, the approach is very, very compatible. Um, and Barbara Rosenwein in her uh, always friendly and diplomatic way has also sort of smoothed over the divide between these two uh, approaches by framing one as being uh, about the bounded body uh, practice uh, approaches and the other affect theory about a porous body while allowing each of these to participate in the other model. Of course, uh, practice theory can also allow for an, a more open body. Uh, it depends on you know, how you perform it. And um, the affect theory people can also accommodate uh, the same sorts of notions of a bounded body. But, you know, that, that's her uh, way of, of uh, splitting them up without splitting them too deeply. Um, what she means by that, I think, is that uh, the practice theory camp still adheres perhaps more strongly to the notion that a body has an inside and an outside. There's still sort of this uh, boundary that between inside and outside that makes a difference because, you know, Bourdieu also talks about the way we internalize uh, the social structures, so there's an outside and an inside in his model, um, whereas the body uh, of affect theory uh, flows out into the world in a way that uh, knows no, no real boundary. Um, the body and the surrounds, the space, the, the objects, they seem to sort of merge. Um, and that is the interest uh, of affect theory's description. Rosenwein, interestingly, uh, uh, this is in the book that I uh, mentioned before, does not correlate the bounded body with the modern subject, as readers of Charles, Charles Taylor might, might do. Uh, and by ignoring this conventional wisdom, encourages us, I think, to find open and porous bodies in the modern period, in the present day, like uh, these charismatics, I think, uh, have and do. Um, and the Methodists that I looked at in the, the 19th century as well. But certainly, um, affect theorists would claim that we are all unbounded bodies anyway, so there's no uh, modern, uh, pre-modern divide for them either. And we should probably also be aware that there were bodies in the pre-modern period that could be closed off uh, and bounded as well. Um, I would say that that's a feasible and possible emotional practice in the pre-modern period as well. It's not a, a, a characteristic of the modern body. So uh, uh, this is uh, also an appeal, I think, by Rosenwein to overcome conventional uh, theorizing about what a modern and pre-modern body might be. Affect remains an important term in the history of emotions, uh, even with all of the uh, critical um, reception of it due to its early assumptions that uh, affect needed to be pre-cultural and pre-linguistic in order to really be affect. I think that has been modified somewhat in the past years so that it has um, come in, uh, that there's a more relaxed sort of stance toward affect theory now. And I do see, I think, more convergence uh, between affect and practice theory. Um, and sometimes I, I'll read a text uh, that uses the term affect and references texts in affect theory, and um, the term affect also seems to describe something like habitus. It seems to describe sort of the preconditioning of the body that predisposes it to a certain emotional practice. And in the end, uh, it's not surprising that these two theories are, uh, have been rivals or, uh, or now maybe are friends, uh, because they, are both, they both represent important interventions in the history of emotions to bring the body back in after this preliminary, overly cognitive, overly linguistic uh, phase. Affect has been especially uh, picked up uh, by those who work with uh, objects. Um, perhaps it's particularly suited for what we would call inter-objective relations, uh, picked up by geographers in particular, uh, they find that it works very well with regard to space. And so for Sarah, I uh, wanted to say a few words about how emotions as cultural practices can be helpful for an examination of space and architecture. 
perhaps the most well-known uh, and broadly discussed concept in Germany anyway that, that links uh, emotion and space is the concept of atmosphere, um, a, a concept that has uh, been championed in, in Germany by uh, Gernot Böhme uh, in his book Atmosphere, Essays on the New Aesthetics of 1994. Böhme uses the term atmosphere to discuss uh, the entire complex of, of sensations that are involved in perception because, as he points out, the traditional concept of perception as a mere collection of sensory data uh, is not enough. The full sensory experience includes the affective, uh, emotional, imaginative uh, experience of it, of what we've perceived. Um, so again, this is a, a sort of an idea of bundling. Um, and for him, the primary result of perception is not just perceiving something, but also feeling something about that thing, uh, and that is the atmosphere. So, uh, Bruma writes, for example, quote, when I enter into a room, then I am in some way tuned by this room. Ich werde durch diesen Raum gestimmt. Um, some people translate this as attuned. Uh, its atmosphere is decisive for my condition, for, for how I feel, uh, für mein Befinden, uh, Böhme writes. This new aesthetics that he proposes is then the study of the relationship between qualities of environments and human states of feeling, as, uh, as he puts it. Atmospheres are the link between the environment and the emotional. Um, but they are not only, according to Burma, the feeling of a space that you walk into, such as a room. Uh, they also attach to objects and to people. So um, he would argue, for example, that the notion of uh, aura that Walter Benjamin forwarded was, is sort of foreshadows his conception of the, of the atmosphere, he sees that something that surrounds an original work of art, um, you know, to use Benjamin's example, that, that thing about it that commands respect and reverence um, and also puts a distance between the work of art and, and the viewer, uh, that this is a kind of atmosphere around that object. May or may not be a wise sort of extension of this term uh, to include uh, objects and people. Um, and it's rather easy to see, I think, how the term affect could absorb both aura and atmosphere. But it, what it comes down to is that spaces and objects affect people, and scholars struggle to find terms to describe this phenomenon. Uh, Alfred Gell obviously um, talked about it with the, by using the term enchantment. It's another uh, intriguing term to think about what objects and especially works of art can do to bodies. But this notion of Stimmung I found in recent literature has also gained some traction. It's uh, sometimes also translated as attunement, which I like because it, um, it speaks to the uh, coordination of body and space uh, and bringing them together. Burma acknowledges that objects and spaces and therefore atmospheres um, can be produced by people. Uh, producers of spaces and other works of art and architecture do aesthetic work. Burma notes in his examples uh, things like background music, you know, the elevator music, the music, uh, but also stage settings, um, cosmetics, interior design, gardening, uh, all of these are produced atmospheres. And for this reason, he sees his new aesthetics as having the potential for critique, uh, one deeply informed uh, by the Frankfurt School of Social Thought. Uh, Burma fears the aestheticization of politics and the economy in which he sees potential for alienation and deception. And so he calls for a critique of atmospheres that reasserts our freedom in the face of the power of the atmosphere. Um, one could argue in the classic sort of cultural studies mode that in so doing he is uh, 
turning consumers into passive and manipulable uh, creatures. Um, and I, I have to say, I find that he, although he addresses uh, this, this production side of, of uh, the atmosphere, the making of atmospheres as cultural work, he is really mostly interested in the atmosphere as potentially problematic affect. Um, like affect theory, uh, the atmosphere concept builds uh, its argument on the notion that our feelings are not necessarily inside us, but sort of float in between uh, myself and this atmospheric object or space. Uh, Berman does this by drawing on the work of the philosopher Hermann Schmitz, who criticized the introjection of feeling, uh, the psychologization of feeling uh, in the course of classical antiquity, um, and thus allowed people like Berman to think about emotions as being outside uh, a person. And this dispenses more or less also with the necessity of communi communication um, in the sense of decoding signs, you know, to transfer information about feeling. The transfer of feeling, being affected, is a matter uh, of mere presence, of co-presence, uh, the co-presence of spaces and bodies. And like the affect theory, which came about a decade after this book, uh, Burma's work can be criticized for universalizing for rendering human responses to environments and objects ahistorical and pre-cultural. He does pay some lip service to the fact that people learn how to react to certain spaces and objects, that they confer with one another about appropriate responses, uh, and that these are social processes. However, he is so committed um, to not viewing uh, atmospheres as fully socially constructed that, so that he emphasizes this power of, of atmospheres and downplays the fact that this power is uh, dependent on the receptiveness of, of the bodies, of the consumers, uh, a receptiveness that is not universally given, but a product of readiness, of, of uh, willingness, of conditioning. In other words, Burma has not taken the habitus into account, and this has been pointed out um, by several critics. One of them is Andreas Reckwitz, um, who I'll talk about a little more, and Martina Löw, uh, a sociologist, both of, both of them sociologists. Löw uh, takes a statement from Böhme, for example, in which he says, when one enters an apartment and encounters a petit bourgeois atmosphere, uh, or one enters a church and finds find oneself bathed in a holy twilight, uh, the former, he writes, exudes confinement, where the, whereas the latter invites devotion. And Lerf points out that this petty bourgeois environment might be confining and oppressive to some, presumably educated bourgeois like Burma, uh, but perfectly cozy to those who live there. The church may invite some to devotion and a feeling of devotion and others perhaps to anger uh, to indignation over a luxurious baroque altar or to repulsion at the thought of bending the knee or bowing one's head um, surely atheists are not automatically triggered to feel reverent when they enter a cathedral or uh, at least this would be an interesting research question. <laughs> what does it cause in atheists when they enter a cathedral? What kinds of atmosphere do they experience? So certainly it can be true that spaces affect us and that spaces are constructed precisely with this effect in mind, but spaces have an intended audience and others may not be in that audience. They, you might enter a space and not get it. Um, you have to have a body prepared to respond to it and, you, and a mind prepared to read it. So in this way, carefully orchestrated spaces can be offered as an aesthetic experience designed to elicit certain emotions, but there is no guarantee. Architects, interior designers, set designers, they all 
perhaps uh, trade on the notion of affect, that emotion moves from the outside into the inside, that the space that they're creating is going to affect bodies, uh, and they create what they want to be, this affective space, by placing objects in a certain way and filling these spaces with substances such as light and sounds and qualities of air, smells. Uh, but rather than assuming that these qualities trigger emotional states, I would suggest that we consider that perhaps people behave into an atmosphere rather than reacting. Um, an atmosphere can induce a certain emotional practice, a bodily comportment, a voice lowered or raised. The way that spaces are filled, either by objects or um, artifacts, pur purposely placed things or perhaps just a natural uh, uh, landscape, invites bodies to engage with that space, and that engagement is a feeling, but it's one done by an informed body. Sound is very important in producing atmospheres, and Burma also discusses this, um, again, lamenting the aestheticization of the economy, which is achieved in part by permeating uh, spaces of consumption with music, which he calls acoustic furnishing. Um, when Burma discusses atmospheres, they're divided into natural or produced atmospheres, in which case he makes value judgments about who's doing the producing. Um, artists are more or less exempt from critique in his uh, rendering, but commercial producers of atmosphere are roundly criticized. Uh, so you could say that his approach sort of has a, an opposition of nature versus good or bad culture. Anthropologists take a different approach uh, in this regard. Of course, we uh, withhold such judgments of high and low and good and bad in terms of culture. Charles Hirschkind, uh, for example, an anthropologist, uh, uh, when thinking about the soundscape of a city like Cairo, um, describes them as being produced by people, uh, music blaring out of their cars, their propensity to honk, uh, to shout, to tolerate these noise levels, and so on, but without naturalizing them or making someone or some institution, such as consumer capitalism, responsible uh, for it. A number of other anthropologists have discussed the ways in which spaces filled with sensory information, with smells and sounds and feels and looks, uh, contribute to a person's sense of belonging there. This has been an area of research that has become uh, important in anthropology, the ways that uh, building a sense of home and belonging is, a, is an emotional practice. This is not only because we are confronted with a familiar environment and react um, with a sense of well-being, but because we engage with the environment, we behave into it that way, um, our bodies and minds, both or in varying uh, mixtures, having learned to feel that way about that space. The element of learning is important, I think, uh, because it emphasizes that our feelings about home can change. Um, we can move somewhere and acquire a sense of home about this new place. Um, we appropriate a space as our own. We enact an emotional attachment to it in practices of, let's call it, homing. Um, and this can include creating our own atmosphere, for example, in our own homes, in which we may put together assemblages of sound, smells, colors, textures, temperatures, lighting, and other affordances that we determine feels like home. Um, and it includes acknowledging the feel of a space as my home, where I feel at home. So these are examples of how we can incorporate emotions as cultural practices embedded in bundles of practices um, as such as spacing uh, and homing, um, which encompass implementations of sound and light and temperature, etc. Um, and a bodily practice of comfort or discomfort. Bodies may practice unease or even fear in certain spaces. The challenge that this approach presents is finding evidence perhaps also in the ways that people resist 
the intentions of architects in their emotional practices. Um, in any case, space and architecture are part of the package of emotion as cultural practice. So to wrap up, I will reiterate my central claims. Uh, emotion can be fruitfully thought of as something we do, along with a whole set of other things. Um, and as historians, we're not interested in understanding the pure emotion process, as perhaps a psychologist might. But the accomplishment of feeling, the execution of affect in the social and historical setting, that is emotion's precondition, as well as what makes it mean something. Shifts and differences in the practices themselves and or the meanings they contain is what we do. Is we write about those shifts and differences. Those, the practice theory and affect theory have often been presented as opposing approaches. I find that they have come together in interesting ways in recent years, since in the end both of them are interested in the activation of the body and its contribution to emotional experience. And then I talked about atmosphere as one example of how affect necessarily depends on practice, on various doings and sayings, while at the same time drawing attention to the fluidity of emotional experience. So, thank you for your attention. I look forward to our discussion. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the UCD Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of episodes, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.